Oh, I'm going to miss that guy. <laughs> he's been a real rock over this last uh, kind of season. And I know he's been that for the young people as well. So do do get behind him. Do pray for him. And do just, you know, love on him over the next three months and just, yeah, support him in all that he's doing. And, yeah. um, right. Down to the fun stuff. <laughs> I can see that you're all really excited, right? Okay, uh, so we're reading through the Bible as a church over two years. You've probably heard me say that a lot. Um, and and we're, we're reading two chapters a day, one in the morning, one in the evening, or however you want to do that. Um, and I, I want to encourage you, if you lost track of that over lockdown, or if you haven't been doing that and you're, you're new or you're whatever, I want to encourage you, pick up your Bible and start reading. You can find this week's readings on the bulletin. You can also find them on our website. Um, and... Um, Here's the thing, we are not reading the Bible so that we can check a box and say, done it, made it all the way through. Matt pushed us, but we got there. That's not what we're doing. We're not reading the Bible so we can say, yep, we've read it. We are reading the Bible and we want to do it every day. And I want to encourage you, even if you can only manage three verses, give that a go. Just read three verses every day. But we're not, we're not doing it to check boxes or, you know, win awards or whatever. We're doing it because it's the word of God. Because God, the creator of the universe, has spoken and, and, and he, by his grace, allowed it to be written down so that we could get to know him. That's why we're doing it. That's why we're doing it. And every day when we read it, Here's what I love about this, because there are bits, right, let's be honest, that are difficult, aren't there? <laughs> there are bits that we read and we think, what on earth is that about? I even think that. So don't panic if you do, all right? But there are bits that we read and we're like, what is going on here? And, and it's foreign to us because it's like thousands of years old. But I believe this, that when we read it, even when we read the bits that don't make sense to us, it's not just so that we've read it that we do it. It's because when we read it, something happens. Each time we read it, our hearts, they turn just one degree and they align with heaven. That's what happens. That's why we read it. We don't read it to get knowledge, although that can happen. We don't read it to get wisdom or to say we've done it, although all of that can happen. We read it because when we read it, somehow our hearts are changed. Somehow we line up with heaven. And when that happens, wow, wow. When that happens and we actually hear God speak, there's life and there's order and there's beauty and there's joy and there's peace and all of that stuff. That's why we're doing it. And that's why our preaching every week follows that along. Because we want to just encourage you in that, hopefully. Please, God. <laughs> but that's what we want to do, right? So that's, that's why we're doing that. So today, we're in Thessalonians, which means we're nearly at the end. But guess what? When we get to the end, we're going to start again. <laughs> Every two years, we're going to read through the Bible together as a church. We're going to keep encouraging each other. Next time we do it, we're not going to just do all the Old Testament and all the New, because I know that was a struggle, right? I mean, I mean, I love the Old Testament. I don't understand it, but apparently some people don't, and um, that was hard going. So when we go through next time, we're going to do a chapter of the Old, uh, sorry, a, a, a book of the Old and a book of the New, a book of the Old and a book of the New. We're going to do it like that, and we're going to just kind of work our way through, and we're going to start making the connections between the Old and New Testament as well, which I'm really excited about. Um, that's what's going to happen in January next year. But right now we're in Thessalonians. And Thessalonians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Um, and 
I'm, I'm not going to read a whole chunk of it and preach on a specific chunk. What I want to do tonight is, is I want to just pick a verse at the beginning and a verse at the end. I want to show you the context. And then what I want to do is unpack what Paul is saying within the letter because of the context. Okay? So, right towards the beginning and right towards the end, Paul mentions something. And so in chapter 1, down in verse 9 and 10, Paul says this. Um, <clears throat> They tell us how you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay, so there's a verse there where Paul's saying, you turned to the living God and you've believed in what he's done with his son, raising him from the dead, and you are waiting for Jesus to come again. Now, if you jump to chapter 5, uh, down to verse 2, Paul says this. Um, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I want to just take a few minutes to talk to you a little bit about the day of the Lord, okay, and the second coming of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get into loads and loads of detail because when we get to Revelation, we'll probably do a lot more on that, all right? But I want to unpack a little bit of it, just give you a, a little toe dip into the day of the Lord stuff. Because I think when we talk about the day of the Lord, a lot of people freak out. Okay. The great and terrible day of the Lord, you know, and we're like, do we really believe this stuff? What what on earth? Like we believe in Jesus who's loving and good and and he's going to come like fire. And what what on earth is all that about? So I want to just introduce you to the idea of the day of the Lord because here's the thing the day of the Lord did not start with Paul in the New Testament the day of the Lord is an ancient Old Testament idea yes Old Testament we're back there already come on Um, so the day of the Lord is an Old Testament idea and it first kind of appears back in Exodus 14 15 around there Um, and, and originally it was just called this the day That was it. It was just called the day. And so in Exodus 14 and 15, you start to read about the day and what happens on that day. And in Exodus 15, they sing this song about what God did on that day. And that day is the day that God set the people free from Egypt. That is the day. That's the very first day of the Lord that the Bible refers to. And then all the authors after that start to build on this idea. Now, A few things they talk about when they talk about the day. Okay, the first thing is this. The day of the Lord is a day where the oppressed get set free. That is what the day of the Lord is about. The oppressed get set free. There is freedom. Okay, that doesn't sound scary, does it? Right, that sounds good and hopeful and joyful. That is the first thing to know about the day of the Lord. The second thing to know about the day of the Lord is this. It is the day that God defeats evil. What happened on the day of the Lord? He drowned the Egyptian army that were chasing after the Israelites. He did away with evil. He he dealt with it. So the day of the Lord sets the oppressed free, but not only that, it deals with evil. God conquers evil. And the third thing to know about the day of the Lord is this. At the end of Exodus 15, um, in this song that they sing, uh, the very last line of the song says something like this. It says that the Lord is Yahweh, so literally God himself. Yahweh reigns as king forever and ever. 
What does it say about the day of the Lord? It is the day the oppressed gets set free. It is the day that all evil is conquered. And it is the day that God becomes king and reigns forever, bringing his kingdom of joy and hope and peace and goodness. That is what the day of the Lord is about. So Jesus builds on this idea a little bit later on because the day of the Lord was so important to the Israelites that they started celebrating it every single year. And they had a festival, or they still have a festival, called Passover. You remember the story about how God was going to pass through Egypt and kill the sons of all the, uh, all the firstborn sons? Um, and, and the Israelites, they painted blood of, of a lamb above their door and on their doorposts. And God said that the angel of death would pass over them if they did that. And so they survived, they lived. And so they start celebrating the Passover. And this becomes the celebration of the day. And later in the New Testament, it's this very meal, this celebration of the day of the Lord, that Jesus chooses to uh, use to redefine something and, and to tell us something new is happening now, a new covenant. And so at Passover with his disciples, he takes bread and he breaks it, this, this traditional thing that was part of the meal, and he says, this bread is my body and it's this new covenant. And then he takes wine and he says, this is my blood in this new covenant. And what Jesus is saying is this, what he was about to do on the cross, he believed was the day of the Lord. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was he defeated evil, he set the oppressed free, and he became king. He took his place as king again. He was crowned and raised up. And, and, and that, so for Jesus, the death and resurrection is also the day of the Lord. So here's another thing we learn about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not just this one-off event that's going to happen in the future. It's already happened all the way back in Exodus. And it happened in Jerusalem when Jesus died and rose again. And here's another incredible thing. The day of the Lord has happened many times already. You see, the Old Testament prophets talked about the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord wasn't just one thing that God was going to do. It was something that God was always doing. Why? Because this is who he is. He's the God that sets the oppressed free. He's the God that deals with evil. And he's the God that says, I do reign over all things forever and ever. And so the prophets, they talk about the day of the Lord happening again and again and again. Um, one of the prophets that talks about it is Amos. In Amos chapter 5, you discover him talking about the day of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, though, because up until this point, the day of the Lord has always been something that happened to set the Israelites free. But some twist happens here in the scriptures, and Amos says, hey, Israel, you better, you know, be afraid, <laughs> because the day of the Lord is about to happen to you, not for you. And you see, what Amos is saying is this. You, Israel, have become like Egypt. You, Israel, have become like Babylon. And you are now oppressing people. You have become evil. You have partnered with evil. And you are ruining people's lives. You are not living under the king. And so you know, the day of the Lord is about to happen to you. Why? Because God he is the God of all people. He is not just the God of one group of people. He made all of us in his image and he loves all of us. But if any of us start oppressing others, well, God cannot have evil and he will deal with it. And so God even says, I'm coming against my own people, Israel. 
He's doing that because he wants to set the oppressed free. He's doing that because he wants to deal with evil. And he's doing that because he is king and he will have his way. That's what's happening there. I'll give you one more Old Testament reference and then we'll move on, okay? So Joel chapter 2, the prophet of Joel in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2 talks about the day of the Lord. And it starts off like this. Let me read you a few verses. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. And it goes on. And we start thinking, hang on a minute, Matt, that does not sound like the hopeful, joyful day of the Lord that you just talked about. <laughs> but what's going on here is this. God is about to come and deal with evil. And Joel says, God is not going to leave it. God is not because he cannot, because he is just and he has to bring about goodness and deal with evil. He has to. But what's amazing is this. Chapter two carries on. And if you jump down to verse 28, um, he goes on and God says, I'm going to deal with evil. Once I've done that, gosh, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Wow. God says, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to deal with evil. But then I'm going to come and pour out my spirit. His very presence, his very breath of life is going to be poured out on all flesh. God's going to come and bring life and hope to everyone. That's what he wants to do. That's his heart. He wants to pour that out. And so the day of the Lord is about dealing with evil, but it is about bringing people back to life, about setting the oppressed free and his kingdom reigning forever. That is what the day of the Lord is about. Wow. Wow. Do we believe that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That is who our God is. Now, do you remember last week, um, for those of you who weren't here, many apologies, quick recap. But last week we talked about, we're in Colossians, and we talked about how love comes through the Spirit because it is a fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes into our lives by faith. And faith comes because of hope. And hope comes because we hear the gospel. And so last week, what we essentially talked about was how all these things, love, joy, peace, hope, patience, kindness, goodness, if we want to live in a world like that, if we want to be people that experience that and, and express that, then we have to hear the gospel because the gospel is the root of all of that. Okay. Now we often think of the gospel as being about Jesus dying and rising again. And that is true. That is what the gospel is. But the gospel doesn't stop there. You see, that's part A of the gospel. Part B of the gospel is the day of the Lord. You see, part B of the gospel is, yes, Jesus did that. But because he was raised up from the dead, because we know that's true, because we believe that, we can also believe that when he says he's coming again, he means it. And he is coming again. And there will be freedom and evil will be dealt with and he will reign forever. Amen. Like that, that is gospel part two. And so in Colossians, we're getting gospel part one, but in Thessalonians, we're getting gospel part two, what we look forward to. 
And Paul roots all of it in the gospel because chapters one, two, and three of one Thessalonians, they're all about the gospel. Paul says, hey, chapter one, you heard the gospel. Chapter two, you believed the gospel. Chapter three, stand firm in the gospel. And that's what he says in those three chapters. But the context isn't Jesus dying and rising again now. The context is the great day of the Lord and all that God is about to do, all that God is about to do. Um, I uh, once heard someone explain it a bit like this, and I love this example. I think it works really well um, in understanding how this is part of the gospel. You see, we say that when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated sin and evil, right? But today I'm telling you that when Jesus comes again, evil will be defeated finally once and for all. And we're like, hang on a minute, didn't he do what? Ah. So here's how the gospel works. It's a little bit like this. D-Day during the war, okay? They landed on the beaches in France. And in that moment, the Allies knew that it was in the bag, right? They knew that the war was won. Was it over? No. Because they had to get from there all the way to Berlin. (laughs) They still had to take down Hitler, right? But they knew that in that moment, victory, we're going to win. This is it. And so the cross is like D-Day. The cross is like D-Day. Jesus has done it. He's landed on the shore and it is over. It is won. Like it's in the bag. Nothing's stopping that now. He is risen from the grave. But now we live in the in-between time between D-Day and the end of the war. And that is when Jesus comes again and declares the final victory. That's what it's like. And we're living in that period, knowing that the victory's in the bag, but we're looking forward to when Jesus finally declares himself as king over the whole world. The, um, the, well, the, 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 the early church and the church throughout the ages had two celebrations, uh, two rituals that they did to look forward to this. One of them was Advent. Now we think, don't we, of Advent as being about the coming of baby Jesus, right? And, and, it, and it is, and that's great, but that isn't what it was originally about. You see, Advent was something that they celebrated looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. But then when Jesus didn't come, and then he didn't come again, and then the next day happened and he didn't come, and the next day, and then the next year, and then the next decade, suddenly we started to kind of go, oh, and we made Advent about baby Jesus coming, as if that was it. And that's great, we can celebrate that. But actually, Advent is about looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. It's a celebration and a declaration of faith that we believe that he is coming. Um, The other thing that they did, and we're going to do this tonight, the other thing they did was they shared communion together. Now you think, hang on, communion's about the cross, right? It's about his body being broken and his blood being poured out. But here's the thing, communion is about that. It is about the the body and blood of Jesus being broken and shed. But in, in Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us this, that we break the bread and we drink the cup every time we meet together until well, we do it to declare the, the return of the Lord until he comes again. So there's this act, it celebrates what he did, but what he did gives us hope and faith to declare what he is about to do. You see, it's not just about what he did, but about what he's yet to do, what he's coming to do, the promise that he's made in us. He is coming again. He's coming again. Like, does that not excite you? Like, Jesus is coming back. 
He's coming and the oppressed will be set free and evil will be conquered and he will reign as king forever. Like, boom, wow, wow. That's incredible. That's the good news. He's coming again. Now, down to the nitty gritty of Thessalonians. So that's the context, right? The context is that Jesus is coming again. And that is the fulfillment, the final, the end of the gospel. Yes. Now, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 6, he says this. He's basically saying, you guys, you know this. You know he's coming again. You believe it. And so then in verse 6, he says, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let us be awake and sober. What's he saying? He's saying this. If you really believe that Jesus is coming again, then live like you believe it. Live like it's true. Like surely the hope of that makes you want to live differently. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, it's not just, hey, I believe in Jesus and I've got my ticket and one day I'll make it to heaven. No, Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. That transforms everything I think about how I live and who I am and what, what I do. That literally transforms everything. Paul says, wake up, church. Wake up. Don't be asleep. Be sober. He's not saying, don't go out and have fun. What he is saying, okay, is this. He's saying, be sober, be alert. Like, see what's actually going on around you. Enjoy the hope that you live in because Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And so Paul's basically saying, like what we said last week, the gospel has an impact on how we live and who we are and what we do. The gospel, when we really believe it, yes, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also the hope that he's coming again impacts our lives now. It impacts our lives now. Has that sunken in? Like, has that impacted you? Has that radically changed the way that you think about who you are and all that is going to happen? Man, we need to let it. We need to let it. And so that's kind of what the rest of Thessalonians is about. It's about Paul saying, well, what does that really look like? What does that really look like? And I want to pull out just three things, okay? Faith, hope, and love. Because these three things... Paul, he brought up in Colossians, you remember that? He's bringing it up again in Thessalonians. He's like a dog with a bone. He keeps bringing it up. Why? Because it matters, because these things matter. And so um, in, in chapter one, verse three, Paul says this, hey, we remember before God and our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by faith. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance um, your endurance is inspired by uh, hope. And so I want to use this verse to ask, what does this mean? What does this look like? If we really believe this stuff, how does this impact faith, hope, and love? How does this impact our life? And I'm going to do this really briefly, okay? Because I'm, I'm not, I don't know all of your life. I don't know all the things you do. I don't know what you get up to every day. So I want to just plant some seeds that you can then take away and think, gosh, how is my faith impacting my life? How is God's love shaping who I am? And how is hope causing me to endure and keep going? And I want you just to think about that. And I think that Paul unpacks these three things in chapter four. So I'm going to use um, Thessalonians 1 verse 3 as a little kind of framework to look at chapter four, because I think he unpacks some of that, okay? So, so the first one then is work produced by faith. 
And I think that Paul talks about that in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And he says this in the first couple of verses. He says, hey, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living um, now. We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying this. You know how to live the Jesus way. You know how to live it. You see, the phrase work produced by faith the word work in the Greek literally means action. That's what the word means, action. And so Paul's saying your actions should be produced by your faith, which is the word pistis. And pistis, like I've said probably many times, uh, pistis, it, it means literally to be persuaded. So I am so persuaded about the good news of Jesus that it causes me to act in a certain way. What is that way? It is the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. Now, Paul goes on to talk about sexual immorality. We're going to save that for another day, okay? <laughs> but I want to ask, why is Paul talk about sexual immorality? Because that's not the thing. There's Jesus, the way of Jesus isn't just about how you live a sexually pure life. The way of Jesus is also about many other things. But Paul picks this one example for this church. Why? And the clue to this is in verse 5 of chapter 4, where Paul says, uh, they, they shouldn't live uh, in passionate lust like the pagans do who do not know God. You see, Paul picks the topic of sexual immorality because the people around them who were worshipping pagan gods were entering into all kinds of sexual acts of worship. So in their temples, they would have... Um, they would, they would have um, shrine prostitutes that they would sleep with as an act of worship. It would be like coming in here and having sex with a prostitute to worship God. But that's what they did. That's how it worked in those pagan temples. And Paul's, Paul's saying this. He's using this as, as an example because it's a very stark example. Okay? There are many examples he probably could have chosen, but he uses the stark one to make a point. And basically what he's saying is this. Live the way of Jesus. Let what you believe about Jesus shape the way that you live. You shouldn't be living like the world around you. Don't, don't just embrace culture. Don't just embrace the things that everyone else tells you is okay. Actually get to know the way of Jesus and build your life upon it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Build your life upon the way of Jesus. Um, the second thing then, labor prompted by love. Now, I think that... Um, Chapter 4, verses 9 down to uh, 12 talk about this. Paul unpacks that there, practically what that looks like. But before we jump into it, let me just tell you about the word labor in the Greek. The word labor in the Greek, it, it literally um, means weary toil. That's what it means, weary toil. So Paul's saying that love, which is agape, so the love of God should produce or should prompt us to weary toil. The love of God should drive us to do something that we think is so worth doing that we will not stop doing it. That's, that's what he's talking about, right? And so what does he say then in verses 9 down to 12? What is, how does this unpack that? In chapter 4, Paul says, hey, the first few verses, I don't need to talk to you about love. Why? Because God's taught you how to love. So God's love has been taught to you and you, you know it. So that should prompt now a weary toil, okay? What does he go on to say about that? He says this. Verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. 
You should work. Uh, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as you were told. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a bit of a problem with that verse because I'm not very good at quiet life. <laughs> so, so I want to just unpack that because I actually think that's I think that's a, a bad translation of the Greek. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and then I'm going to tell you that if you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. And I'll give you what I think maybe Paul's getting at if you think that's the correct translation. But let me tell you about a couple of Greek words, okay? So the word ambition in Greek, it, it literally means to be zealous for, to strive after. Great. Ambition is a great translation for that word, isn't it? To be zealous for something, to have ambition for it. Good translation. The next word in the Greek is the word that we translate quiet life. It's just one word in the Greek, quiet life. Um, now, this is the interesting one because this word, it, it, it doesn't mean quiet life. It's such a strange translation because the Greek word literally means to be still or to enter rest. So what's Paul actually saying? He's saying this, make it your ambition, be zealous for, strive after the stillness of God, strive after the rest of God, strive to enter in to rest, strive to pursue Jesus more and more and more. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Let the love of God cause you, prompt you to strive to want to know him more, to press more into him, to run the race, to keep going. That's what he's saying. The, the verse goes on and it says about minding your own business, doesn't it? And I think um, in our modern context, we, we have a, an understanding of that phrase, don't we? Mind, mind your own business, you know, keep out. Um, but that phrase, it isn't really what it meant in the in the Greek, you know, so we we just impose our modern way of thinking upon that phrase. But 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 actually, I think what Paul's getting at here about minding your own business is this: keep focused, keep focused. Don't get distracted by all the other things around you. What I think Paul's saying is this: be zealous for the pursuit of of Jesus and keep focused on Him. Don't get distracted by the things around you. That's what I think he's saying. That's what I think he's saying. Now, if you want to disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. Maybe you know more. Maybe you know more Greek than I do. I have to look it up. I don't know it. I have to study it. So I'm learning as I go. Um, maybe you think it literally means no matter. It literally means what it says there, that they should um, mind their own business and lead a quiet life. Um, and, and if you think it means that, great. Let's just work with that for a second, okay? Let's just assume that's correct. What's Paul getting at then? I still think he's getting at the same thing. I still think he's getting at the same thing. I think what he's getting at is this. Let the love of God, okay, prompt you to live in such a way that you say, less of me, God, more of you. Less of me, more of you. You don't chase after ambition in terms of, look how great I am. Look at my job. Look at the things that I do. What Paul's saying is this. No, live life in such a way that the thing that shines through about you is not what you do, not what you have, but the love of God, the love of God. I think that's what he's getting at. So either way, I essentially think it, it comes down to that. So faith should lead us to action. Love should lead us to weary pursuit of more of Jesus. That's what he's getting at. And the third thing then, hope. So he says in chapter one, verse three, um, your endurance inspired by hope. I think the rest of chapter four unpacks a little bit of this from verses 13 down to 18. Um, in, endurance inspired by hope. I, I love the word inspired because it literally means inspirited. And the, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, is breath. So literally it means to be breathed into, to be breathed into. Let hope breathe into you so that you can endure. Wow. 
Why is he saying that? Why is he saying that? He's saying that because, like we said earlier on, they heard the gospel and they were believing for Jesus coming again. But the next day, he didn't come. And the next day, he didn't come. And the next year, he didn't come. And the next decade, he didn't come. And slowly, their community started to get old and die. And, and they were kind of going, we're waiting for Jesus to come. But he hasn't come. And now people are dying. What's going to happen? Like, and they started to lose hope. And Paul says to them, hey, you know what? When Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then the rest of us will be raised up to meet with them. They haven't missed out. They're just sleeping right now. They're not dead. They're just sleeping. And when Jesus comes again, they'll be raised up to be with him like we will be too. And so Paul says this, keep your eyes on the hope of the gospel that Jesus is coming, that he is going to set the oppressed free. What's he setting us free from? From death, from evil, from sin, which always results in death. He's setting us free from that. The dead in Christ, they're going to rise up as well and we're all going to be with him. Let that hope cause you to keep going. Let it cause you to keep going. Let me come into land with this then. Um, so we said that in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul's a Hebrew, isn't he? And, and you know that I, I love to study the Hebrew language and how that all works. And, and so even though he's writing this letter in Greek, he still thinks like a Jew. He still thinks like a Hebrew, okay? And so when he's writing his letter, he does this Hebrew thing that they do all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And we call it chiasm or parallelism. And so Paul presents an idea, uh, and then later on, he mirrors that idea. And he does it twice because he's saying, this is really important. Like, I want you to get this. And so in chapter 1, verse 3, we read about faith, hope, and love. But look in chapter 5, right towards the end. Down in verse 8, Paul says this. But since we belong to the day, hey, remember, the day, we belong to the day. We belong to the day of the Lord. We're his people. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Faith, love and hope. Paul echoes them again at the end of the letter. But this time, this time, he talks about them in army language. Put them on like a breastplate and the helmet of salvation. This language is war language. We're going to war. Keep going. Keep fighting. Keep striving. Now, how do we fight that fight? How do we fight that fight? And I want to say this. I believe that the way that we fight that fight, it isn't that we go out and start attacking people. It isn't, it isn't that we get aggressive when we see things that are evil that we don't like. The way that we fight that fight is that we declare the gospel. We declare Jesus. You see, in Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 17, Paul talks about the armour of God. And, and he talks about the sword of the Spirit. Okay, And when he's talking about the sword of the Spirit, he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God. How do we fight the fight? We stay planted on the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We keep believing. We know that he died. We know that he rose again. We know that our sin is dealt with and we know that he is coming again. And we stay firmly rooted on that and we encourage one another in that. Paul says in Thessalonians, encourage one another with these words. There's good news. Jesus is coming again. He is. And so we keep, we keep declaring the good news of Jesus. When Jesus was attacked uh, or um, 
tested or tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did he fight Satan off? With the word of God. With the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is powerful. Because the word of God is hope. Because, come on, what happens when God speaks? Genesis 1. When God speaks, order and beauty are brought out of the darkness and chaos. And there is hope and there is life and there is light and there is goodness. The word of God is powerful. And so we stand on the word of God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take part today in that ancient ritual that the church has been doing for centuries and centuries. We are going to break bread together. We are going to drink wine together. And we are, or grape juice, (laughs) because we're Baptists. Apparently that's what we do. Um, But hey, we're going to do that, right? And and, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to declare that Jesus' body was broken. And because of that, death is broken. And then no more, no more am I afraid of death. Death is defeated. And we're going to drink wine and we're going to declare that the Spirit of God is poured out and that there's life and hope and goodness and love and joy and peace and all of that is available in Him. And we're going to do that. Why? Why? Because we do that when we meet to declare that He is coming again. He has done this. And so we believe that He is coming again. Amen? Yes. Come on. Come on. So. I'm not going to get fancy about this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to grab it here. Oh, I might need a mic stand. That'll be good, hey? Because uh, I can't hold that and break bread. That'll be fun. It's nothing special. It's just a piece of bread. In fact, it's just gluten-free bread. So um, make sure you get it all in because it pff, disperses into little bits. But yeah, great. We're just going to, we're going to take this bread, right? And for us today... We enter into the ritual, the drama. We retell the story about what Jesus did. Why? Because it fills us with hope about what he is yet to do. What he is yet to do. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was having Passover with his friends. He was sharing in a meal with them. And he just took the bread that was there. And he said, this that has meant so much to us for many years, today becomes something new. Today, it means something new, and it invites us into a new covenant, into a new hope. But that new hope is an ancient hope. It's a hope that says God will defeat evil. He will release the oppressed, and he will reign as king forever and ever. And so Jesus took that bread, and he gave thanks. Let's just give thanks. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. We thank you for the ancient story of the scriptures that tells us about what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Why? Because you are faithful and you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you will never change. And we can put a hope in you. So we thank you for this. We thank you for this bread, this simple symbol that contains so much and invites us in to so deep a love and hope. Thank you, God. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. It's the symbol of the new covenant. It's the new covenant. And then after, he took the wine. And he said, this wine, this is my blood that is poured out for you. You are covered. You are free. When God looks upon you, he sees me. He sees Jesus. And the Spirit of God 
will be poured out on all flesh. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. Come on. That's what we celebrate today. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The defeat of death and the resurrection of hope. The King Jesus offers us. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus.